0: Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, June 28th, 2023,
1: where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. The U.S. Senate says the FBI and DHS dropped the ball ahead of January 6th. The U.N. puts Afghanistan's civilian
0: death toll at over 1,000 since 2021. Putin addresses the Wagner Rebellion. And Moscow confirms the mercenary group is continuing its operations in Africa.
1: The Supreme Court denies state legislatures control over elections.
0: Trump appears to discuss classified files on a publicized tape.
1: Switzerland says it's a hotbed for Russian spies. Japan approves over-the-counter emergency contraceptives. The CDC sounds the alarm about
0: malaria in Florida and Texas. And a report finds English cricket is
1: rife with racism and sexism. In our top story, according to a recent U.S. Senate report, the FBI and DHS both dropped the ball ahead of January 6th. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Forbes, Washington Post, Daily Caller, and New York Times. The U.S. Senate Homeland Security Committee has released a new report saying the January 6th, 2021 Capitol riots were, quote, essentially planned in plain sight on social media, but that the FBI and Department of Homeland Security completely dropped the ball with respect to security measures. Released on Tuesday, the report says that despite having received multiple tips from numerous sources, including that the Proud Boys' plan is to literally kill people, the DHS on the morning of the riots said there was no indication of civil disobedience, and the FBI identified no credible or verified threat. The New Orleans FBI field office was warned about a so-called quick reaction force in northern Virginia, and the warning was then sent to all FBI offices, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, DHS, the Justice Department, the National Security Agency, and the State Department. The report argues that if the DOJ and FBI all knew that thousands would be attending the day's events, it is unacceptable that these agencies did not take sufficient steps to warn their partner agencies to prepare for such a threat. The FBI said it has since increased its focus on swift information sharing with law enforcement partners and, quote, made improvements to assist investigators and analysts in all of our field offices. The DHS said it also strengthened intelligence analysis, information sharing, and operational preparedness. Meanwhile, the Senate report recommended the agencies conduct internal reviews of their pre-January 6th actions and improve their information sharing with other agencies. On this program, we separate the spin
0: from the facts. Those were our facts. And here's our first narrative spin, the Democratic narrative from Daily Kos. It's unthinkable that the same agencies that overstepped their bounds when collecting data on those protesting against police violence against black people in 2020 and overreacted to those protests failed to connect the dots in advance of the January 6th riots. Clearly, these agencies are biased and must be reformed
1: moving forward. We counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Fox News. We need to get to the bottom of why the protests at the U.S. Capitol got out of hand on January 6th. But the Democrat-dominated House, January 6th Committee, and now this Democrat-authored Senate report are too partisan to be taken as gospel. There must be an investigation by an independent third party to make sure criticism lands in the right place and the American people are in the truth versus the hyper-politicized democratic narrative.
0: Man, I think we're at the point now where... No matter what the answer comes, even if it's from an independent party, if it's against what people agree with, they're going to say that that source is biased. It, this whole well is poisoned. They just need to cut their losses and move on. That's what I say i think I think that would be best for kind of everybody. like yeah. like the people involved on both sides, l- literally the people who were there at the protest. I mean, I'm so sorry that there were people that that's that were hurt and killed. and And I'm so sorry that all this has happened. It's I think everyone can agree this was a boondoggle. and yeah, let's let's stop embarrassing ourselves. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. A report from the U.N. Over 1,000 Afghan civilians were killed since the Taliban takeover. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan, the Independent, Fox News, and Voice of America. The United Nations Mission to Afghanistan reported Tuesday that it has recorded roughly 1,100 civilian deaths and over 2,600 wounded in Afghanistan between the Taliban takeover in August 2021 and May of 2023. Three quarters of these civilian casualties were caused by improvised explosive devices in populated areas, including Shia Muslim places of worship, schools, and markets. Most of the IED attacks were reportedly carried out by the Taliban's foe, and a regional affiliate of the Islamic State Group, known as the Islamic State in Khorasan Province, or ISKP. The Taliban-led foreign ministry reacted by stressing that the security situation has improved since before the takeover, with over 8,800 civilian casualties recorded, including over 3,000 deaths in 2020 alone. Earlier this month, the UN Security Council's analytical support and sanctions monitoring team claimed that relations between the Taliban and al-Qaeda are strong and symbiotic, with some 400 fighters operating in Afghanistan despite Kabul denying such links. Meanwhile, in April, Afghanistan's ruling Taliban killed an unnamed ISKP leader who reportedly planned the bombing at Kabul airport during the U.S. withdrawal in 2021, which killed 170
1: civilians and 13 U.S. soldiers as people tried to flee the country. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from NBC News. The collapse of the U.S.-backed administration in Afghanistan and the subsequent Taliban takeover has been disastrous for the Central Asian nation as the victorious militant group reenacted a discriminatory system of repression while the nation was thrown into poverty. As the international community focuses on helping Ukraine, the Taliban has an open field to exploit common people. And the Global Times brings us
0: the establishment critical narrative. It's certain that life has changed for Afghans since the Taliban takeover, with the government facing more complicated social and economic challenges. But the improvement in the security situation is undeniable. Armed violence has plummeted, and rural
1: areas, once too dangerous, are now being visited by urban dwellers. We have a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says there's a 47% chance that Taliban-controlled Afghanistan will be used as a base for anti-NATO terrorism by 2026. I think I can kill two birds with one stone here. I mean, if they're trying
0: to up tourism in Afghanistan and Florida's kind of turned against Disney, what about Afghan
1: Disneyland? Man, you got it. Yeah, they had Euro Disneyland. I mean... Uh, <laughs> Putin addresses rebellion as Zelensky claims counter-offensive gains. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Newsweek, NBC, and President Zelensky's official website. In an unscheduled TV address late on Monday, Russian President Vladimir Putin, reportedly visibly angry, made his first comments on the short-lived rebellion launched by Wagner PMC since its conclusion on Saturday. Quote, Any blackmail or way to bring confusion to Russia is doomed to failure, Putin said, adding, I made steps to avoid large-scale bloodshed. Without mentioning Wagner founder Yevgeny Prigozhin by name, Putin said the organizers of the rebellion betrayed their country and their people, stating that this is what Russia's enemy wanted, so that in the end Russia would lose and our society would split, choke in bloody civil strife. Putin also paid tribute to the Russian pilots killed in the failed mutiny. Military bloggers suggested that as many as 13 were dead. Putin's address came hours after Prigozhin, now exiled in Belarus, also commented on the mutiny for the first time since Saturday. In the 11-minute voice memo released by his press service, Prigozhin defended the uprising, but said that his intention was never to topple Putin or the Russian government. Instead, he insisted, we marched as a demonstration of our protest. Prigozhin said the aim of the march was to avoid destruction of Wagner. He said his fighters were categorically opposed to the plans from Russia's defense ministry that seek to officially incorporate Wagner and all other mercenary groups into the Russian military by July 1, 2023. Prigozhin proceeded to further criticize the Russian military, suggesting that his actions revealed widespread security flaws. U.S. President Joe Biden also made his first public comments concerning the mutiny on Monday, saying he was in constant contact with U.S. allies over the weekend to coordinate their response, and that the U.S. and its allies wanted to prevent a possible perception that America had any part to play. Quote, they agree with me that we had to make sure we gave Putin no excuse, to blame this on the West, to blame this on NATO, Biden said. We made clear that we were not involved, that we had nothing to do with it. Meanwhile, in his nightly address on Monday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said it was a happy day, stating, quote, today our warriors have advanced in all directions. The Institute for the Study of War, a U.S. military think tank that tracks battlefield progress in the war, seemed to confirm Zelensky's claims in its latest assessment. Quote, Ukrainian forces continued counteroffensive operations and advanced on at least two sectors of the front as of June 26. the ISW said. The Guardian brings us the pro-establishment
0: narrative. Although this rebellion was short-lived, the events of the past weekend have no doubt undermined Vladimir Putin's political authority in Moscow. His grip on power in the country has never been
1: weaker, and the severe consequences of this rebellion are only starting to play out. The pro russian narrative comes from TASS. This is a unique and crucial time for Russia. The nation is not only entangled in an all-out war with the West, but faces a battle in terms of the economy and information too. Russia must not let itself become divided over this issue, and must stand up squarely to these challenges and threats. And the Metaculous
0: Prediction community brings us this nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that Vladimir Putin will cease to hold the office of the President of Russia by September 2025.
1: Scott, when are you going to call in your mercenary group? What, what, what was it? The, the bad boys of Philly? That yeah,
0: that's right. Well, the thing is we pay <laughs> biweekly, so they're already paid for the next two weeks. So, oh, I I, mean, I don't, you know, I, the, that, that, those checks have already cleared. So I'm not calling anybody back for at least 14 uh, okay. days. Just, okay. Just so we're clear. This mercenary thing goes two ways. If you don't pay them, they stop fighting. But, you know, if you pay them, let's, you know. And more news from Russia, Sergei Lavrov says Wagner is continuing its Africa operations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, The Moscow Times, Al-Arabia, Euronews, Radio Free International, and Nation. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on Monday reassured that thousands of troops from the Russian mercenary group Wagner will maintain their missions in Africa, despite the armed uprising of Wagner forces in Russia over the weekend. This work, of course, will continue, Lavrov said. Referring in an interview with state broadcaster Russia Today, or RT, to Wagner personnel he said were operating as instructors in Mali and the Central African Republic, or CAR. The attempted Wagner rebellion under its leader Yevgeny Prigozhin will not affect the strategic relationship between Russia and its African allies, Lavrov emphasized, adding that the respective countries also have direct security deals with Moscow. The Russian chief diplomat said Wagner is doing a good job in Africa and claimed Europe, notably France, abandoned Mali and the CAR, which turned to Moscow and Wagner for military instructors and to provide security for their leaders. Wagner reportedly maintains 5,000 troops on the African continent, primarily in the CAR and Mali, where they arrived in December 2021. Wagner personnel are also deployed in other African countries, such as Libya, Mozambique, and Sudan. Meanwhile, the U.S. State Department on Monday renewed its warning to African countries against cooperating with Wagner, claiming this weekend's events confirmed Washington's position that the mercenaries bring only death and destruction
1: to the countries in which they operate. Scott, thanks for laying out the facts. The first spin for this story is a pro russian narrative, and it's coming from Indianarrative.com. While the collective West is alarmed that an increasing number of African countries are turning to Moscow and Wagner in search of stability, it is itself responsible for this shift. After all, it's the hypocritical West that's destabilizing Africa and fomenting conflict to get its hands on the continent's vast resources. The Ukraine war, in turn, is primarily a proxy war aimed at breaking Russia and then looting it. African nations are well aware of these realities, and in the new multipolar era, they are now siding with Moscow. And
0: Politico brings us the anti-Russia narrative. As part of Moscow's foreign policy, Wagner's mission is to back anti-Western African governments in return for access to the country's vast natural resources. To expand Moscow's sphere of influence, Putin's mercenaries also rely on cyber warfare and don't shy away from human rights abuses. However, recent events in Russia should be a wake-up call for all African rulers colluding with Moscow as they show how the violence and state fragility represented by Wagner and Russia,
1: respectively, might ultimately signal their own downfall. And we have a nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. It says there's a 76% chance that Yevgeny Prigozhin will remain as the functional leader of the Wagner Group on June 30, 2023. The Supreme Court rejects the independent state legislature theory. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by MSNBC, PBS NewsHour, Washington Post, and Independent. In a 6-3 ruling in the case of Moore v. Harper, the Supreme Court has rejected the Independent State Legislature Theory, which the North Carolina GOP argued granted state legislatures nearly unlimited control over elections. The court ruled that the North Carolina Supreme Court did not overstep its powers when it rejected a congressional districting plan as excessively partisan with the state attempting to invoke the independent state legislature theory for the first time in a major court case. The majority found that the U.S. Constitution's election clause, quote, does not insulate state legislatures from state judicial review, rejecting the argument that only Congress could intervene in election law. Proponents of independent state legislature theory argue that since the elections clause stipulates that the times, places, and manner of elections shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, the legislative branch is the only organ empowered to regulate elections. The ruling affirms the precedent that the state election law is open to judicial review under state constitutions. In his majority opinion, Chief Justice John Roberts did note that state courts did not have the power to take part in election regulation, only judicial review. The three dissenting justices, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch, argued that the decision is moot due to subsequent actions from the North Carolina Supreme Court and should have been dismissed, also taking issue with the reasoning of Chief Justice Roberts in his opinion. Uh,
0: It's not surprising we have some uh, left and right matching narratives on this story. The Democratic spin comes from Mother Jones. The American people can breathe a sigh of relief after SCOTUS rejected a legal theory that would have given a license for states to rig, reject, or outright steal elections, which is especially pertinent as the GOP refuses to rebuke former President Trump about the 2020 election. If the court had affirmed independent state legislature theory, it would have destroyed American democracy as we know it and given control of elections to
1: partisan lawmakers without review or oversight. The Republican narrative comes from the Washington Examiner. There has been much hysteria surrounding the independent state legislature theory on the left without realizing that states already have the power to rig elections if they so choose. If state lawmakers wished, they could replace presidential electors with those willing to give them a favorable result, which is something states rejected firmly when Trump made requests to do so. Nothing has changed, as it is still political convention, not heavy-handed lawmaking that keeps our democracy in check. And we have another nerd narrative
0: from Attaculus. This time they predict that there's a 10% chance a dispute, which determines the outcome of the 2024 presidential election will be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2024 or 2025. CNN releases a tape of Trump appearing to discuss secret documents. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Newsweek, Al Jazeera, Sky News, CBS, The Independent, and The Evening Standard. U.S. news broadcaster CNN has released what it alleges to be former President Donald Trump audibly discussing and showing members of a meeting classified documents at his Bedminster Golf Club and estate in July 2021. During the audio recording, paper seems to be heard shuffling as Trump appears to discuss highly confidential documents. The released clip is approximately two minutes of what sources have told CBS News was a two-hour conversation. The tape was discovered in May, but just recently became public. The audio also features a supposed aide stating that former Secretary of State and Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton would, quote, print out classified information, quote, all the time, with Trump appearing to comment that she would rather send documents to disgraced former Democrat representative Anthony Weiner. According to the audio, Trump seems to discuss a military document concerning the then chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, and apparent plans to attack Iran before appearing to admit that the documents weren't declassified, but regardless, quote, classic, interesting, and cool. Trump has previously pleaded not guilty to 37 counts related to mishandling classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida. Last week on Fox News, Trump claimed that he had held nothing to declassify in his possession, but rather only newspaper stories and articles. In response to the leaked audio, a spokesperson for Trump's campaign called the tape bait for Trump haters as
1: President Trump did nothing wrong at all. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. The first spin is an anti-Trump narrative coming from The Guardian. As this tape adds to the legal scrutiny around Trump, it's integral that he not win re-election. If he does, the U.S. will see the DOJ transformed into a vendetta machine purposed toward revenge. With public trust in institutions already at an all-time low, the Justice Department's neutrality and safety must be protected from the danger of Trump's rhetoric and efforts to turn partisan criminal justice into a reality. And the pro-Trump narrative
0: comes from the conservative Treehouse. The leaked audio by CNN is merely a political exercise to influence the public. As the documents from the audio released by CNN narrative engineers are inconsistent with the documents stated to have been found by the DOJ and FBI, the recording will never be used in court. Being of no legal value, the audio has merely been leaked to once
1: again generate a public narrative that appeases the left's ideology. Once again, Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 33% chance that Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before the year 2030. Turning our attention to Switzerland as they say it is a hotbed for Russian and Chinese spies. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, SWI, The Print, Barons, and Associated Press. Since the start of the war in Ukraine, Switzerland has become a hub of espionage, according to the country's intelligence agency, the Federal Intelligence Service, which suspects that at least one third of the 220 Russian officials accredited in the Alpine nation are spies. The FIS annual report claims Switzerland's membership in the UN Security Council has led to an increased threat from Russia and China. And warns that international peacekeeping organizations have declined. The report adds the Swiss capital has grown in importance as a spy hotspot as European countries crack down on Russian spies, driving out a large number of them since the Ukraine war. According to the FIS, tensions between Washington and Beijing have also seen a growth in China's intelligence operation in the nation. The number of suspected Chinese spies in Switzerland is far smaller than that of Russia. But Beijing's agents are more likely to work in the country as scientists, journalists, or business people, according to the report. In a press conference at the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Tuesday, spokesperson Mao Ning denied the allegations, claiming that they're groundless smears. All right, thanks for those facts, Eric. We have an anti-Russia
0: narrative from Sundries. In connection to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Europe has dealt a most significant strategic blow to Russia's spy network all across the continent. Coordinated expulsions of Russian diplomats saw 400 spies evicted last year, crippling Russia's espionage capabilities. As it sets its sight on Switzerland, these same tactics must be employed to extinguish Moscow's threat in Bern. The pro
1: Russian narrative comes from Zoya. These allegations are a stark example of Western hypocrisy, which routinely projects its own crimes onto others. The U.S., for example, has never given up on trying to spy on Russia, as evidenced by the recently leaked Pentagon documents. Luckily, the Russian special services and counterintelligence units know what they're doing and are working to prevent these activities. And the cynical narrative comes from Nation.
0: Whether they admit it or not, all countries engage in espionage, and most, if not all, send spies disguised as diplomats. And when one country expels another's representatives, it's both expected and accepted to take reciprocal steps. That means the more Russian representatives are banned from the West, the more of its own diplomats are likely to be forced out of Russia. That's the name of the game. Japan approves a trial for over-the-counter emergency contraceptives. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Japan Today, the Japan Times, The Guardian, Kyoto News, and WION News. On Tuesday, local media reported that Japan's health ministry had approved the sale of over-the-counter emergency contraceptive pills, commonly referred to as morning-after pills, on a trial basis through next March. A health ministry panel approved the sale of such pills without a prescription at pharmacies with trained pharmacists, private rooms, and wide availability. The pharmacies must also be able to coordinate with local obstetricians and gynecologists. Japan's current laws require women to receive a prescription from a clinic or hospital to take emergency contraceptive pills, which are most effective within 72 hours after intercourse. Non-prescription emergency contraceptives are permitted in roughly 90 countries, and studies show they are 80% effective. A few months ago, the health ministry solicited public feedback on the potential trial sale, receiving 46,312 comments, the majority of which were positive. Monday's approval comes amid a wave of sweeping changes to Japan's policy surrounding women's sexual and reproductive issues. Earlier this month, Parliament broadened the definition of rape while raising the age of consent. The move also comes just months after the abortion pill was approved in April, before which Japan only permitted
1: surgical abortions in the first nine weeks of pregnancy. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. The first spin is a left narrative coming from Bloomberg. While a step in the right direction, Japan still lags far behind many countries as its male-dominated society neglects women's issues. Japan's abortion laws have been far too restrictive, and it has a very problematic history when it comes to approving other contraceptives, like birth control. While the approval of non-prescription emergency contraceptive pills is a positive development, much more work needs to be done to advance reproductive rights in Japan.
0: And the right narrative spin comes from UCA News. Under the guise of advancing contraception, Japan is pushing access to abortion, which isn't only tragic as it ends a human life before it can even start, but it also amounts to a systematic depopulation of Japan. Pro-abortionists always talk about the most extreme scenarios when trying to justify the procedure, but never account for the repercussions. Japan loses 140,000 babies a year due to abortion, and that is a moral and economic tragedy for a country with a rapidly
1: declining population and birth rate. Once again, our friends at Metaculus are giving us a nerd narrative saying there's a 50% chance that the lowest number of annual births in Japan through the year 2100 will be at least (coughs) 579,000. The CDC warns of locally acquired malaria in Florida and Texas. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, NPR Online News, NBC, Associated Press, Fox News, and Axios. On Monday, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention sounded the alarm about malaria cases found in both Florida and Texas. The cases were identified as locally acquired, meaning the cases originated in the U.S. and had no links to foreign travel. The warning noted that the five cases detected between the two states are the first locally transmitted cases in the U.S. in two decades. Roughly 2,000 cases are diagnosed in the U.S. each year, but are mostly comprised of travelers returning from areas where the spread of malaria is common. Malaria is a disease that is spread by infected mosquitoes. While it's not transmitted from person to person, it can be spread from a mother to an unborn child during gestation or delivery. Often, treatment allows for a full recovery but the disease can be fatal. The CDC said that the five infected individuals are improving, but warned healthcare personnel in Florida and Texas to be on alert to the possibility of more cases of the infection and consider increasing their supply of the intravenous drug used for treatment. The reported cases were all caused by the parasite Plasmodium vivax, or P. vivax, which is the most prevalent malaria, but also the most treatable. Dr. Mark Siegel, a professor of medicine at New York University Langone Medical Center, does not believe that a sustained period of transmission will occur, but there should be increased concern for travelers who return to the U.S. infected. Following the CDC's warning, the Florida Department of Health issued a statement that encouraged Floridians to take precautions by applying bug spray, avoiding areas with high mosquito populations, and wearing long pants and shirts when possible, especially during sunrise and sunset when mosquitoes are most active. All right, thanks, Eric. The CDC brings us this pro-establishment narrative. The U.S.
0: takes the fight against mosquito-borne illness seriously. Through the CDC, the U.S. has partnered with universities through the Vector-Borne Disease Regional Centers of Excellence to research and develop innovative solutions for the control and prevention of vector-transmitted diseases. The centers continue to play a role in preventing and responding to outbreaks using those solutions across the country.
1: The establishment critical narrative is coming from the Southern Medical Association. There's also a political reason why the U.S. has seen an uptick in previously eradicated diseases. Unlike their law-abiding counterparts, illegal immigrants cross the border without being screened for dangerous diseases like tuberculosis, leprosy, polio, cholera, diphtheria, and smallpox, among others. As shown by decades of no alarming upticks, the government obviously knows how to keep these illnesses out, and that solution is stopping illegal immigration. And narrative C comes from Stat News. In 2020, the CDC
0: reported 17 different vector-borne illnesses and nine pathogens new to the U.S. since 2004. The West Nile virus outbreak of 2021 in Arizona proved that the U.S. is unprepared for such events and has its experts very concerned. As climate change has accelerated, it's shifted the environments conducive to the mosquito-borne illness to new areas of the globe. Not only is the government woefully unprepared, but so are medical professionals and healthcare facilities. Our final story, Racism and Sexism is Rife in English Cricket. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Sky Sports, CNN, and BBC News. An extensive report by the Independent Commission for Equity in Critic, or ICEC, published Tuesday, has found that racism, sexism, elitism, and class-based discrimination are widespread and deep-rooted in English Cricket. The 317-page report claims racism is entrenched in the English game, while women and women's teams are frequently demeaned, stereotyped, and treated as second class. Based on the evidence provided by over 4,000 players, coaches, administrators, and fans over two and a half years, the ICEC report claims that the current complaint system is confusing, overtly defensive, and not fit for purpose. According to the ICEC, which made 44 recommendations, 87% of respondents of Pakistani and Bangladeshi heritage, 82% of Indian origin, and 75% of all black respondents admitted experiencing racism in the past five years of playing cricket. Additionally, the report alleges English cricket follows an elitist and exclusionary mentality due to its private school and old boys' networks, so much so that children hailing from state schools or lower-class backgrounds are often called peasants. Meanwhile, the English and Wales Cricket Board, or ECB Chair Richard Thompson, issued a public apology and said the findings
1: would be used, quote, to reset cricket. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. The first spin is Narrative A coming from New Statesman. The two-year independent investigation is a wake-up call for the ECB to ensure that English cricket is for everyone, regardless of background. Details of structural and institutional racism call for a fundamental overhaul of the game including revising women players pay structure the ecb remains an organization overwhelmingly dominated by white public school educated men that must change to end the endemic within the game and
0: finally narrative b comes from the guardian the fact that the ecb opened itself to independent scrutiny speaks volumes about its commitment to celebrating diversity on all fronts however implementing specific recommendations like equal pay for women's players may prove economically challenging. Instead of forcing the cash-strapped board to climb a mountain, all stakeholders must drive systemic changes to rid society of structural and institutional issues like racism.
1: Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, June 28th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read
0: about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree
1: on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric steiner inviting you to join us next time on improve the news